welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's review-only episode of the show, we're going to talk about The Lobster, a dark, surreal comedy now playing in downtown New Haven that imagines a world in which single people are punished for their solitary relationship status by being turned into animals and then released wild and bewildered into the woods. I'll be joined by WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman for a discussion of this critically acclaimed absurdist satire, and we'll also use our conversation about The Lobster as a jumping-off point for a slightly broader discussion of the films of its director, Yorgos Lanthimos, a young Greek filmmaker who, with just four feature films under his belt, has quickly established himself as one of the most original directors working in movies today. But before we begin, I want to extend a very warm welcome to my movie review partner, Lucy Gelman. Hey, Tom. Lucy is the station manager for WNHH LP Community Radio, the host of the Kitchen Sink program on Fridays at noon on this very station, and a staff writer for the New Haven Independent. Lucy, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking this dive into the strange world of Yorgos Lanthimos movies. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this journey. So I think a little bit of plot explanation is required at the very top, especially for a movie like this. So I'm going to get this out of the way early. The Lobster, as I mentioned earlier, is, takes place in a world where single people are forced to check into a hotel where they are given 45 days to find a romantic partner among the other guests. If they fail to pair off by the end of their allotted time, they are forcibly turned into animals, not through a magical snap of the fingers, but through an irreversible and presumably quite painful surgery performed by the hotel management. The movie follows a recently widowed and utterly banal, almost featureless architect, played by Colin Farrell, as he arrives at the hotel and tries to navigate the desire, humiliation, and desperation that comes with trying to find the perfect life partner. But this is not a world that understands desire, humiliation, desperation, or any other kind of emotional turmoil. This is a passionless and intensely structured world where partnership has nothing to do with love and everything to do with social norms. So Lucy, I think that's where I'd love to start our conversation. Before we offer our thoughts on the subject of this movie satire, before we start talking about what this movie is trying to say about society and relationships at large, What did you think of the world this movie presented? Did you find characters you cared about? Did you find a compelling or entertaining story? Or is this all a humorless, abstract, intellectual exercise? Oh, my goodness. Well, we'll get into this further. But um, no, I I think the world presented is a really quirky and even charming in a dark comedy as charming world sort of way. And I, I did. I found the Colin Farrell character um, endearing and interesting. And, um, and, and I thought the whole uh, plot of having this hotel where people go if they're profoundly lonely. So, so we should also say this is a universe in which if you want to live in the city, you have to be coupled off. And so he's lost his wife. And then we also find out very early that his brother has tried this and not succeeded and been turned into a dog. Um, and, and so you've got this, like this exposition, all of which happens. And I think the first four minutes of the movie, and it's just, um, like it's a world I was really excited about. And I think the longer I watched it, uh, the more disenchanted I became with it, but we'll get into that. So that's actually exactly where I, I want to go next because, so we invited Jonathan McNichol, a producer on WNPR's The Colin McInerney Show to come here. And um, he, he couldn't, his, something came up in his schedule last minute. He couldn't come on the show, but he shared some of his notes. 
And one of his complaints about this movie was that there was too much time spent kind of world building in Mm. the first half. Um, He said that it's, you know, it's a quirky world. It's an idiosyncratic world. And so much time is spent kind of building out the rules for this and not necessarily enough on the character story. And I know talking with you that you have some serious concerns with how the story ultimately plays out. Now, what I think is uh, the kind of the winning uh, element of this movie, or at least the element that brings the audience in to actually care about the characters and story, is that ultimately this is a pretty conventional or at least familiar love story with a plot. I mean, we have two kind of misfit outsiders who do not fit into the uh, the society as constructed you know, in, in the world around them. They fall in love and they try to you know, they court one another. They try to make that love happen against the rules of the society. And ultimately, we are following that trajectory of of two people kind of orbiting around one another and then slowly moving towards one another. And then at the end, we can get into, you know, the ambiguity of that final image. But ultimately, this is a love story as presented in lots of different movies. Granted, it's in a very different world. But the type of the kind of trajectory of their relationship, unlike in other movies by Yorgos Lanthimos, which we'll get to, is is quite a familiar one. I mean, two mm, people, mm-hmm. lonely, out of place, find each other, and then they go to some pretty extreme places to to try to be together. Uh, you're totally right about the the character development. In this we don't get a lot of backstory on characters, but the the little that we do, such as Colin Farrell showing up at the hotel with his brother who's been turned into a dog tells so much about the motivations for that character, the concerns of that character. Here is a family member who has undergone the exact same fate that he's afraid he's about to go through. And we don't have to know anything about where he's coming from. We just have to look at that dog and see Colin Farrell is trying not to be this dog. Then of course, some other terrible things happen to that dog. But we also see the scene in which Colin Farrell picks up the brother who has transformed into the dog. That's one of the first scenes we see in the movie. Um, when someone says, I'm so sorry, he didn't make it. And you have to piece together the fact that this brother is is a, a dog. Um, and you sort of realize, oh, I'm, I'm traveling very far and very fast into this sort of fantasy world. Just dwelling for a second more on the way that the relationship at the center of this movie is a pretty familiar one, and therefore the kind of cold, satirical exterior of it is actually kind of a mask for Mm. a a very warm and familiar story at the center. Think about how much time is spent developing the on the courtship between the Rachel Weisz character and the Colin Farrell character. And these are some of the funniest parts of the movie, too. When they develop an entire new sign language to communicate in the woods. So this is after Colin, in the second half of the movie, Farrell kind of escapes the hotel and finds himself among a community of, you know, very uh, rigid loners in the woods and he falls in love with a woman played by Rachel Weiss. And in order to communicate, to keep their, their relationship secret from their surroundings, they develop a sign language that <laughs> is very drawn out um, and idiosyncratic and pretty absurd and doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's them. I mean, as lovers do creating their own language in which to communicate this totally new feeling of theirs. But, also, their own language that they think is completely original and completely secretive that in no way, it, you know, it's like um, it's like you have the honeymoon period when you start dating someone, when you're like really sexually excited all the time. Right. 
And you think you're doing these very subtle uh, public displays of affection, like locking fingers and holding hands and stealing a kiss when no one else is looking. And everyone else knows that you're like the sex crazed maniac. And that if you stay in a relationship for a couple of years, you'll move on to a different place that arguably is, is better where you've got this trust thing going on with your partner. Um, but, but in that moment, you're just like completely in another universe. And, and we very much see that with these characters, which I thought was a, a funny, although I'm not sure how successful parody ab- about the world in which we live, in which both being coupled off and being profoundly lonely or being single uh, and unabashedly so all become these very political things that everyone and their brother has a judgment about. Here's the, I, I think you're right on, and I think this is a beautiful example of how uh, the language that Yorgos Lanthimos uses, the kind of the cinematic language that he uses to communicate the depth of the relationship between this couple works so well in the larger context of this very cold, um, structured world in that mm. you're right, the sign language that they're using to communicate their love is, <laughs> it's it's not subtle at all, right? And the way that one of Yorgos Lanthimos doesn't have a lot of kind of directorial or conspicuous directorial touches, but one of them um, is a long take. Mm, he mm-hmm. he trains his camera on his subject and he makes the audience look at that subject for well beyond the time that we are used to looking at something. And that often is used to um, to get at discomfort, to challenge the audience in some way, to show them a shocking image or a surprising image. But here... It's it's showing them uh, a, a surprising way that this couple is communicating a way that we would recognize as just very silly and conspicuous. But in the world in which they exist, that Lanthimos has so dutifully and meticulously built up where there is no language to communicate actual affection like this. As I said at the top, this is a world where relationships have nothing to do with love. They're they're strictly functional um, or the rejection of them is strictly functional. Here we have people who actually care about one another, and mm-hmm. so they're creating something entirely new. And so it's both funny to watch them kind of flailing around in, in this way, but I thought I also found it really sweet and <laughs> really touching and also really original in the context of the world in which Lanthimos has created. Um, I, I wanted, that's, I think, kind of a transition to the next topic I want to talk to you about, and that's about humor and this movie, mm-hmm. because I think that it's it's easy to watch Yorgos Lanthimos movies and kind of uh, be befuddled, sometimes horrified by them, but ultimately these are comedies, I think. And so my question for you is, did you find this movie funny? Did you laugh at this movie? And if so, what is the... What's the kind of boundary between the stuff that made you laugh, the stuff that made you cringe, or maybe things that made you do both at the same time? Hmm. I I think this this movie, um, and we'll get into his his others, Dogtooth and Alps, maybe later in the episode. Um, but I I think The Lobster is yes, absolutely a a dark comedy, and its best moments I think really engage with that and and engage with the because. Like I said before, the whole thing is this funky parody of the world in which we live and in which we are constantly judged and judging others for our personal and and even like professional relationships, but but really our personal relationships and intimacies and how how we navigate those waters, right? Um so so I thought the best moments were 
got right to the heart of those. You know, for instance, when the owner of this wonky hotel says, and if you are having problems in your relationship, we will give you children. They usually solve that. I mean, that's brilliant, right? Because in the real world, like no one wants to talk about it. And there's a cloak of silence. Some people really want to be parents and they have children for all of the right reasons. And some people have kids because they think that their kids will save a marriage. And, um, you know, that like giving voice to that, even in this funny, weird way, um, there's a certain degree of truth to it. But it's also hilarious because the couple in question um, has built their relationship on a lie. And the introduction of this small... uh, you know, blue or green eyed, sweet girl is going to fix everything for them. And the way that line, that plot element pays off is so great because the kid who is, you know, promised to save this relationship, what that kid does, like the one line that kid does is that he or she, I think it's she, she she offers the mom a knife and says, stab this person who's threatening your relationship right now. So the way that she offers to, to bring these two together is through something that, you know, an act of violence that we don't often think of as stitching a a relationship together. Um, I, I think that the, and I I spoke about the, the long takes and I think close-ups are a really important part Mm. of how Lanthimos derives this humor because it's not just close-ups on and scenes like where Colin Farrell, when he's checking into the hotel, he's asked if he wants to be admitted as homosexual or heterosexual, and he can only pick one of the two. The bisexual option has is, is already been taken off the table. Right. And so Lanthimos, the camera sits on Colin Farrell's face, completely blank and expressionless, for maybe 30 seconds of just silence as he decides you know, this momentous life decision of whether he's going to go in to try to pursue a, a man or a woman. And I find that... Um, that way that Lanthimos encourages, you know, he puts characters in situations that we expect uh, to, they resp- they will respond with discomfort. Mm. And then the character doesn't respond with discomfort. And I think the the placidness of them, the, way, the kind of stone-facedness of them, the way that they don't respond the way we expect them to, that makes us feel all the more uncomfortable because we're saying, why isn't this guy responding the way that I would respond in this? That happens in the funny elements. It also happens in the really horrifying elements when we see the brother dog who's been brutally um, murdered, murdered yeah. by a woman that Colin Farrell's courting. There is a shot of the dog lying bloodied on the bathroom floor. And that's actually a shot that I laughed at. Uh, that I laughed and grimaced at at the same time because one, I was so taken aback by the utter, the, the suddenness of the violence portrayed, but also it, it made me hope that Colin Farrell's character would also respond with fear. And he kind of does. But I, I think that training the camera on something very funny and unexpected and also something very violent and then juxtaposing those two, um, can be, can elicit a lot of uncomfortable laughter uh, from an audience. And then, of course, laughter and comedy, and Yorgos Lanthimos has gone on record saying this, he wants people to think about what they're laughing about. So that's the the subject of this satire. And you've already hinted at what you think that this is critiquing, but let's let's spend a second or a few seconds more on that. What what is this movie um, critiquing for you? If it is a satire, what is the subject of its satire? Oh, I I mean I I think it is for me it it was a movie that was very much making fun of and and had some of its strongest moments in um looking at how desperately we seek affection and intimacy in this culture 
or how um i don't want to i don't want to say stubbornly how strongly we defend ourselves if we've made the decision to be single and um if that's for a fixed period of time and how everyone else wants to weigh in on this issue when in fact you know intimacies and and personal histories are completely your own business and i think this film comes at a really interesting moment, you know, I had very mixed feelings about it, but it comes at a really interesting moment when you're thinking about how our personal lives are now perhaps more than ever, um, suddenly becoming everybody's business because of the proliferation of, um, sort of digital means of communication of social media where it's so easy for anyone to know anyone else's relationship status it's so easy it's yeah it's um you know the sharing of photos and yes if you're a very private person you can still be a very private person and perhaps then only your partner in the nsa know your information um but we are in this place of oversharing and public information and i i classify myself as as part of that um and I, I think for that reason, the movie is a really interesting and funny uh, and at times thoughtful meditation on this moment in which we find ourselves. Because if, if you removed yourself from, you know, from, I guess, like this universe in, in some ways for, for a moment and you said, well, there are these things and they walk around in, in two legs and then they get in these little wheeled tin cans and they drive around on these hard streets and then they climb upstairs and go into these offices for eight hours a day um and each of them is filling a niche in the human economy and then they go home and they you know either make dinner or something like that like if you were explaining that to another life form they would say are you out of your mind like like what the human condition has become is it is absurd if you take a step back from it and i think what you're describing is not just uh you know, relationships that humans are I mean, naturally drawn to. I mean, certainly, you know, family, family structure is something that has kind of existed for, you know, well beyond the 20th century American or 21st century kind of American family structure that we understand now. Um, I, I, I think that it, he's getting um, more to the intense social pressure that is put upon people to be in a relationship absolutely. Uh, as, as much as it is the, the kind of shame, the natural or kind of uh, inherent shame that one feels when one feels unable or inadequate to, to be with something or to accomplish something. It's all, it, it's getting at what is imposed from without mm-hmm. and how that structure, how those social conventions completely warp the way that we otherwise undertake entirely like natural human interactions. And I, the the way that the single are not merely judged for their relationship status here, but punished. Yeah, I think that difference between judgment and punishment gets to a really um, interesting comment about the the kind of society that Lanthimos sees at large, and it takes it and it, it takes this critique of kind of obsession over relationships one step further to talk about kind of moralistic invasive political regimes independent of what type of, you know, uh, what about life that they are intruding upon. It says this is this is what happens when a society at large dictates uh, the physical health and personal well-being and happiness of an individual. You don't have to go far to look at, you know, all of the 
the constant debates over abortion in this country, uh, the way that some people in this country want to mandate kind of legally that certain people can do this with their body but can't do that with their body. I don't think it's too far of a step from this critique of a world that you know, is maybe like one big OK Cupid app in the lobster where it's saying this, these are the people that you should be with and these people you shouldn't be to a comment upon this is what happens when a larger social structure completely controls who you interact with, how you um, hold your body, how, how you live, live your body. And I, I think that it's uh, that is where the, the satire becomes powerful to me. It's, I think it's fun thinking about in the context of relationships and really important since romantic, I mean, obviously that's such an important part of our you know, lives as human beings, but I think that it's comment upon the invasiveness of social structures is where like the political punch of this uh, really lies. Yeah. Um, I also, I, I love its comment on compatibility too. Mm. how every, you know, the recipe for a lasting relationship here in this movie is always an arbitrary, uh, similarity in physical or emotional construction. Someone with a limp wants to find a woman with a similar limp or someone who bleeds profusely from their nose knows that they can only be with someone who also bleeds profusely with their right. nose. Um, did that, I mean, I, did you know, notice that as well? Was that something that made you laugh? Was it something that made you think about? Oh, I did. I'm, just quirk. I, yeah, I did. I thought it was very smart. The New York Times last week, uh, or in their Sunday review, ran an article called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And um, and, and I, I can't help but thinking of the two sort of in concert with each other because I think you search out likeness. And, and this movie was very much... Um, you know, a commentary on that. You search out like mindedness, but also sometimes I think people so doggedly try to pursue relationships again, because there's a social stigma around being single. Um, and, uh, and, and because of it, sometimes it, it becomes this totally superficial. I, I mean, of, of course, you know, the person with a limp looking for another person with a limp or the person with nosebleeds looking for another person with nosebleeds or the short sighted guy looking for the short sighted woman. Um, that, I mean, that is like something taken to its extreme, but it does get at this search for, uh, for someone who is very much like you. And I think that's also a, a really funny, um, although, you know, tongue in cheek comment about the fact that, uh, people really aren't people who disagree with each other really aren't talking that much anymore. And that's partly an after effect of, of social media. And I mean, this, I, I want to kind of wrap up our conversation of the lobster and segue into a conversation about some other Lanthimos movies. But if we get to, we'll try to avoid a, an exact kind of spoiler of the final shot. But if we talk about how people who are unlike one another or perceive differences in one another do not necessarily communicate, and people who are like one another seek out other people like one another, at the end, we have our our hero confronted with a challenge to be most like the woman he's lo in love with, whether that key kind of sacrifice that he's going to make to become more similar to her is something that is important for their relationship. Or is that just, is, or is he completely misreading what's required to be in a happy relationship with her? Well, but it's also about people who so quickly and easily acquiesce to the rules that govern their universe and their existence. Right. And, um, and, and in that way, I think he's saying, okay, society 
society has said A, B, and C, so I must do X, Y, and Z to conform to this, you know, this basically rule, like almost mathematical rule or problem set that's been set before me. Before we move on, I, I do want to talk, you know, if, if you're amenable to it, about, um, I, I think about maybe some of the concerns that you and that Jonathan uh, had with this movie because he sent us a couple notes. Because I, I will say I found the second half of the film um, not to be that stimulating. I thought a lot of it could have been left on the cutting room floor. Um, I, I mean, I, I felt like the first half of the film was really like being um, in, in like a montage of Dion Arbus photographs in, in a really satisfying and gritty um, and thoughtful way. And the second was this like half-hearted quotation of Lois Lowry's 1993, The Giver. Um, and, and in that way, I think I left appreciating the thought behind the movie, but maybe not fully appreciating the movie itself. I, I think that gets back to where we started our conversation and that familiar narrative structure that mm. the lobster ultimately follows. Because the problem with the second half of the movie, and really this is something that intrudes upon the first half too, is its predictability, right? Yeah. For, for a movie that is so original uh, in, in its central conceit, uh, that is so surprising and delightful and kind of scary, for us not to be sitting at the edge of our seats and wondering what's going to be happening next at every step of the way is a big missed opportunity for much of this movie. And I think part of that missed opportunity comes at the hands of another directorial choice, which is the voiceover narration that we haven't talked about at all. Uh, Rachel Weiss's character from the very start narrates uh, often kind of in, intentionally redundantly, but offers a kind of fairy tale narration of what's mm. happening in, in the movie. And I think that that puts the audience at a certain remove from the story unfolding before us. It gives us a bit of safety. Uh, it gives us an understanding that something is going to happen that will let us get to a character who can comment from a position of safety on this. Uh, it, it removes some of the urgency uh, and the immediacy of what's going on in front of us. And then, of course, so that one, that dulls the intensity of it. But then in the second half, you're right, where we get into a more familiar structure of uh, of escape and then union and reunion with a uh, a woman that he loves. This is a storyline that we kind of know the contours of. And because of that, I think it becomes slight, even though I found that to be more endearing in terms of my attachment to the characters, I found that it definitely dulls some of the surprise and makes it a bit, I mean, boring for lack of a better mm -hmm. word, but it loses some of that crisp originality that I think so defines Lanthimos's work. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I, I mean, I think the voiceover narration, one thing that we've talked about and that we just don't know at this point is was it something that was originally planned to be in the film? Was it the production studio coming back to Lanthimos and saying, we're really sorry, uh, this doesn't make sense without voiceover narration? So actually, I read some interviews after I brought up that concern, and this was something that Lanthimos wanted to include from the very beginning. He wanted to use the narration and same way that he used the classical music as a kind of counterpoint to the absurd and kind of terrifying things mm. going on in the world of the movie and i don't i i don't think that that was the most successful of directorial decisions um i think that is actually a, a great transition to two movies dogtooth and alps that i find do not have one they don't have any voiceover narration and two they keep me at the edge of they kept me at the edge of my seat for the entire duration of the movie so yeah. dogtooth 
uh, is Lanthimos' kind of breakout movie. It came out in 2009. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. It's very surprising for a very small Greek movie. And then his follow-up, 2011 Alps, uh, in, in 2011, called Alps, uh, was also a, a very critically acclaimed small Greek movie. Uh, both of these idiosyncratic, eccentric, very dark satires made with very little money with just friends and family in, in his kind of Greek theatrical cohort. But I mean, we've, Lucy, we watched some of Dogtooth and some of Alps together. Maybe let's, let's talk about Dogtooth for a second. And starting on that issue of originality, I mean, do you, did you find that movie as original as I did? And also how much do you value that aspect of a work of art and of a movie when, when you're looking, I mean, you, you're someone who studied art history, thought a lot about art, read a lot about art. Originality is something that we seem to fetishize in, uh, in the community of people who talk about art. But when you're watching a movie like Dogtooth, are you thinking this is something unlike anything else I've ever seen and therefore I like it more? Or how does that originality affect you? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I, I do think we fetishize originality and I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, I will also say one of the reasons The Lobster didn't sit well with me, though, is because it was so derivative. So much of it was what? derivative. Wait a minute. What is this movie derivative of? I think that it... I, I think the second half of the movie... Like, you you could have put a Disney movie in and I would have been happy. Hmm. You could have put a Brothers Grimm fairy tale in, you know, with the Esva Einmal and, like, Once Upon a Time. And... Um, so you're referring and to the structure. Of I'm, it being I'm referring to the structure, as opposed to and, specific elements of the plot. Yeah, and I think I, I maybe would have left more satisfied at hmm. the end of the film. Um, but yeah, I, I loved what I saw of Dogtooth um, and and Alps, which we'll get into, partly because I think they're original, but um, I think largely, especially Dogtooth, because it struck me as a much more successful comment on a uh, severe and profound isolation and, um, and, and the steps that uh, both one family will take to, um, to sort of protect, to, to do what they think they're doing to protect their family. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that because I can see you want to jump in. No, without, I, I think you've identified exactly what Dogtooth is satirizing. If Lobster is looking at the intense social pressure that we put on people to be in a relationship, here, Dogtooth, which very loosely, there's not really a story in Dogtooth, but it, it looks at a family, a very isolated family in, in Greece, uh, two parents and children in their probably late teens, early 20s, and the parents have gone to some pretty extreme lengths to, quote-unquote, protect their children from, uh, from amoral influences that may infiltrate from the outside world. So they keep their children entirely contained within their you know, pretty big house and, and yard. They don't let them out into the world at large. They don't let them into the woods or the city or anywhere outside of the bounds of their yard. And the parents also create an entirely new, or I shouldn't say entirely new, but a slightly modified vocabulary where they take words like sea, like S-E-A, their own body of water. They take words and they completely redefine them for their kids so that words that would apply to you know, things that exist outside of the world that the kids exist in, that they're familiar with, are suddenly made, you know, they're brought inside. They're brought inside the walls of this house. So a sea is no longer a body of water. It's a leather armchair. 
Um, a, a keyboard is something that doesn't produce music, but is, is something else entirely. A, uh, a telephone is the salt shaker and not a way of communicating with the outside world. A pussy is and, a light that you turn saying, on and off. And turns off the pussy and the room is plunged into darkness. Um, but, but I think that, so why, this is like the anti-voiceover for me. Hmm. Because if the voiceover put us at a slight remove from what's unfolding in the story and it gives us a, a sense of safety of predictability here with a slightly modif- modified vocabulary i found myself as an audience member questioning my understanding of every single line in the movie and that made the first time it through it made it so scary for me because when someone said can i lick your ear i was thinking oh my god what does ear mean in this vocabulary? What are they suddenly <laughs> going to start licking? Um, can I pass the salt? You know, what? oh my God, I know that most likely the salt is not going to be passed in this scene, but right. something else is going to happen. And what is that going to be? I love the way that that completely destabilized my watching. Um, and I think that it also gets to, you know, the thematic element of control uh, that the parents are trying to implement in this household. But as a narrative technique, it was so effective yeah yeah absolutely there's (laughs) another theme that i saw in uh dogtooth the lobster and alps and we will touch on this as we move into alps is oral sex oral sex comes up in every one of his movies in pretty prominent ways and I wonder if you, I, I have a theory as to why that is so important. And maybe I'll outline that now and I'll see if you, if you buy it. But in, especially in movies like uh, The Lobster, Dogtooth, and Alps, where relationships are very structured and very functional, uh, here, oral sex is an example of a type of, you know, romantic interaction that is purely about pleasure. It has nothing to do with the kind of re- biological reproduction. It has nothing to do with satisfying social norms. It, it's a bit subversive, but it also it, it kind of hints at this subjectivity of characters that society at large is trying to squash in every single way. And so in The Lobster, and especially in Dogtooth and in Alps, we get kind of hints and then depictions of oral sex. I don't know. I, I thought it was a, a thing that I was surprised to see cropping up in each movie, but kind of gets at the how do characters begin to develop a self-awareness and a self-consciousness in a very controlling society. And as Lanthimos, the surprising satirist, will do, he says oral sex is the answer. That's really interesting. I uh, I chalked it up. I really like your theory. Um but I chalked it up entirely to the fact that uh, both of us are American viewers who consume mostly American films. And we are living in a, a society, even a creative society, that is still overwhelmingly puritanical. And, um, and, and I think if, if we were French, if we were Spanish, you know, if, if we were coming at this film from any other, um, not any other culture, but a lot of other cultures cunnilingus in films would would just not be a big deal but I, I do think yeah when you're when you're coming from a background that is dominated by american cinema you don't expect to see someone eating someone else out on on tape but on i don't film. i don't think it's about puritanical american attitudes i think that this is also a response to the strictures of the kind of remnants of an Eastern European kind of Soviet bloc that Greece was not quite a part of. But I think he's operating in a tradition of that reminds me a lot of Franz Kafka Hmm. uh, in that he's depicting, you know, the punishment, judgment and punishment of people who are unable or unwilling to conform to social norms and the intense weight 
of the political machine that can kind of fall upon the social and political machine that falls upon characters when they do try to break free of it. And so, yes, maybe maybe Europeans are a bit more familiar with that type of depiction of sexuality than Americans. But I think that within the world that Lanthimos creates in all of these movies, it is always an expression of not deviance, but rejection of the conventional understanding of how people are meant to relate to one another. And that's kind of the, and I should say just very briefly what Alps, much like Dog Teeth, is a very dark satire about a group of people who impersonate dead people to help families kind of work through a sudden loss. So they hire someone to pretend to be their dead child um, so that they can go through the motions of continuing to interact with that child so that the, the their sudden death is no longer felt as acutely. It's very dark and very funny. Um, but it gets to, I mean, the most important thing that I see across all of these movies by Yorgos Lanthimos and that I'm interested in kind of wrapping our conversation up with is this uh, this kind of dialogue between artificial and genuine intimacy um, and what, why, like how and why society demands a kind of artificial intimacy between mm. people and how people within those confines still manage to break free and achieve in the best of situations a, a more genuine intimacy. And I, I wonder if, if that, that kind of that dialogue, uh, that thesis and antithesis of, of artificial and, and genuine intimacy was something that you picked up on in these three movies. And, and what do you think that Lanthimos is trying to say about this issue of intimacy? I, th- I think definitely in The Lobster, I picked up on that because like you said before, a successful relationship is one that's entirely pragmatic and functional and, and that, you know, extends to a, a sexual level. So before couples are coupled off, one of the things that happens is a, a maid, a maid in the hotel or one of the staff members goes around and sexually stimulates um, men and I I would assume women, although we never see that scene, to the point of erection and then leaves, um, which is... It's both uh, very funny. Which, which is very funny, but, but I mean, uh, also, yeah, it, it is a type of torture. It's excruciating. I mean, if you like if you are brought to the edge of orgasm and then someone says, oh, um, I've got something else to do that. I mean, it's it's literally a painful thing. Right. Um, and, and so I, I thought that was very, um, I I thought it was funny. I thought it was smart. Again, it's for me part of the first half of the film that is so much more successful than the second half. Um, but it's, it's one of the strategies employed by the kind of overarching society to reduce every type of physical interaction to something completely devoid of any personal meaning or affection. Mm. This is strictly a physical sensation. And also it's a a motivation that they're trying to instill in the characters to go out and find a partner who will be able to stimulate you in this way too. It has nothing to do with uh, this more elusive, idealistic concept of really connecting with someone, whether sexually or emotionally or or otherwise. But in Dogtooth, we see that turned on its head in two ways, right? We see it with incest, which plays a big part in the movie. And and then we also see it with an outside character who sort of puts on um, like a sleeping mask so she can't see where she's going in between when she gets into the father's car and when she gets to the house so she can't trace her route back and forth. Um, and then has 
uh, sexual encounters with the son right. and with one of the daughters. So the father has essentially hired a coworker of his to come into this isolated world and to help relieve the sexual tension that he mm-hmm. sees, you know, budding in his adolescent son so that he can focus on his physical training and, and not be as distracted by his sisters or, or anything else. Um, and of course, this influence from the outside world winds up being quite a destructive one for his intentions. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, it's again, another, another example of trying to cordon off. This is what, uh, these are like the different kind of quantifiable elements that make for a relationship. So if we can satisfy each one of these, then we will be complete. And I think that Lanthimos is hinting, even if every single box is checked on an OkCupid profile, or if it's checked in a relationship with someone that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a true connection there. Well, and one thing that we haven't totally talked about is the fact that there's like there's sex and intimacy and whether it's actual intimacy or forced intimacy and then varying uh, conceptions of masculinity and gender more widely than that. But especially in Dogtooth, it's important to the father to maintain this image of himself as the head of the household. And we see that play out uh, in a scene where he releases fish into a pool and the daughter runs in and says, Daddy, Daddy, there are two fish in a pool. I, she doesn't know how they got there. She's not completely mystified by the fact that the fish just showed Clearly up. Clearly this is something that's happened before. Right. That the father's done before. And, um, and he puts on a pair of swim trunks and a, um, not a scuba mask, a, a snorkeling mask, and he grabs a spear, right? And this is so like, you know, Laocoon turned on its head, Right. Because it's this father with kind of like a paunch and no one wants to see this person naked or, or close to naked in the movie. He's an image of kind of pathetic masculinity and, and that masculinity is, um, is, is like doubly made pathetic by the fact that he is keeping his children in a compound in his house. As, as long as far as he you know, wants and understands the family will always mean he is the head of the household exactly. and his kids, no matter how old they are, no matter what's going inside their bodies, they will always be the children. They will always be submissive and obedient. And you're right. That image of him dressed up in his kind of underwater attack gear is ridiculous. In the same way at the dinner table, when he's coaching them through what are the most productive years of a man's life. And they say, 30 to 40. And this is one of the most productive years of a woman's life, 20 to 30. I mean, he has them memorizing all of these arbitrary and completely inane kind of trivia that he has come up with out of the blue, but it's all to one quote unquote, protect them, but more to, to mold them. Well, and in the lobster, it is Colin Farrell's show of a fragile masculinity when he has been partnered off with someone that ultimately leads to his uh, sort of this uh, escape scene and chase scene and then his leaving the hotel. And for me, that was um, everything after that scene was kind of where the film lost its momentum. I just wasn't in it anymore. Um, And and so I think it's, it's really interesting that in both you have this idea of very conventional gender roles and the ways that they're challenged definitely play into the film, kind of this this overarching narrative that Lanthimos is trying to bring to you as the viewer. So if our listeners are interested in kind of starting off somewhere, if they're interested in, in watching any of these Yorgos Lanthimos movies, what, what do you think of the three that we watch? What's the best introduction? I mean, 
Is it the Lobster, the English language debut that may no. be a bit more familiar, or do you go straight to the heavy stuff with no. Dogtooth? I I would say don't even watch the Lobster. Oh, I would say tough don't even words. watch the Lobster. Um, or watch the Lobster and start like exactly or stop probably like fifty three or fifty four minutes in, and and you'll have gotten the best of it. Um, I. But I what would... about the final scene of the Lobster? The final scene is so worth sticking around for, even if you're not crazy about the where the plot goes in the latter half. That final image that Lanthimos most deploys hmm. is just as powerful as any image in any other movie of his. And I think it's, I mean, in comparison to his other two movies, maybe The Lobster is the weakest or the most familiar, um, but also in comparison to most of the stuff that we see at the movie theater downtown, this is a revelation. Okay, okay. Um, I, I mean, I, I would tell people to start with Alps. I, I really would. Um, I've, I Alps found is dark. It, dark and funny and weird um and i thought the entire idea of having you know having this troop this small troop of people who have like kind of wonky day jobs well one of them has a, a not weird day job but one of them is like one's a, a nurse one's a gymnast one's a gymnast yeah. yeah um and and that their side gig is um impersonating dead people so that alone as a topic i I was just really interested in how it was going to play out. Um, but then what Lanthimos does with it and how those interactions between the characters and the the families who are grieving play out and um, his depiction of the bereaved and the sort of the desperation that you see. I, I thought this was the best as far as round character development. Mm. I would also say Dogtooth is totally worth seeing um, but if you are a squeamish person, be warned, because I, I think the last 14, 15 minutes are hard to watch. The, the same is true for Alps, actually. And the same is, I think the same is true for The Lobster. Right? There are images of incredible violence in this that are made all the more shocking because of the kind of the sillier, for lack of a better mm. word, nature of some other parts of the story. But just like with Kafka, I mean, it's not just that you're going to see Gregor Samsa waking up one morning and he's a bug. You're going to see him kind of beaten and bruised and, and mortified. Uh, th this is not lighthearted satire, and I really appreciate that in this movie. I, I don't think that it's it's copying out for something softer. I think he's really going for his own original vision, and he really wants people to respond to the images that he puts on the screen. And I think that is something always to commend in a director. All right, well, I think that for 45 minutes on Yorgos Lanthimos is a great start. I would strongly recommend checking out 2009's Dogtooth, 2011 Alps, and The Lobster, which is his English-language debut, currently playing at the movie theater in downtown New Haven and I'm sure elsewhere in the New Haven area. Uh, we will catch up with you next week on another episode of Deep Focus. I want to thank my reviewing buddy and not yet a, a lobster or other wild animal, Lucy Gelman. Thank you so much for spending some time chatting about this, Lou. You're so welcome. Tom, I have to ask you before we go, if uh, if you had to be admitted to this hotel, do you know what animal you'd be? Well, I wouldn't pick dog because there are, there are too many dogs, dogs in the world. The world. <laughs> and I don't think I would pick a lobster because I'm not as partial to the water as Colin Farrell's character seems to be. I think I would probably pick a a bird of some kind. I think uh, some somewhere floating in the treetops. I feel like you are least likely to be preyed upon by like a bear or okay. something dangerous on the on the land or in the sea. Uh, just coasting among the treetops. I think that's probably what I'd be. What about you? Um, I I you know I think I might be a a shark because no one would. <laughs> 
no one would mess with me i mean i, I was thinking a dolphin because dolphins are very uh, dolphins are actually extremely intelligent um but uh but humans dolphins love dolphins good. and then they try to ride dolphins and then the dolphins <laughs> die because of human-born diseases but no one <laughs> no sharks are safe sharks are no, safe from no human one will poaching? mess with a shark yeah okay. so a hammerhead shark that would uh, <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, Lucy. Thank you, Tom. Okay. We'll catch up with you next week on another episode of Deep Focus.